Welcome to Inside COP26 with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Clyde Built Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit, COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings-on around COP. From unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sega, Sally Milhook and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26. Our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth Percent, a charity who is partnering with our show Inside COP26. The musical intervals of the show is a song called Dawn Chorus by a musical visionary, Cosmo Sheldrake. Uh, Yesterday was a very important day. Uh, It was the last day of the high-level uh, um, leaders and they finished up their meeting and left and so the actual negotiations have started and that will ca- carry on for uh, the next uh, rest of this week and all of next week. Uh, but a very interesting thing that I was involved in that took place yesterday afternoon actually in the uh, headquarters of the Scottish Power uh, uh, office in, in uh, Glasgow where we had a high-powered uh, event with the on climate justice with the Scottish minister Uh, of environment announcing the one million pound fund from Scotland on loss and damage and inviting others to join. It was also uh, attended by the uh, special envoy of Timor-Leste, who's the lead negotiator for the least developed countries on loss and damage, and Mr. Abul Kalamazad, who's the special envoy of Prime Minister of Bangladesh, uh, Sheikh Hasina, on the Climate Vulnerable Forum. Uh, Both of them welcomed the Scottish government's uh, uh, initiative and invited other countries and other uh, institutions to join. And then it was also a representation from a number of international philanthropic foundations who have also been talking about climate justice and we have invited them uh, to match the funds that the Scottish government is putting on the table uh, to put money for loss and damage. It's a challenge to everybody who's interested in doing something about loss and damage and the leaders are talking about it, but they have to put their hands in their pockets and come out with some money and we'll see who is willing to rise up to that challenge over the next uh, 12 or 13 days left here in Glasgow. Can you give us a little bit of info about yourself, please? Yeah, of course. Um, So uh, my name is Helena Bennett. I currently work as a senior policy advisor at an environmental NGO and think tank called Green Alliance in London. Um, I work on climate policy. Um, I have also previously been involved in a lot of activism, um, various like climate change and climate justice um, campaigns and um, protest organizing, all that kind of stuff. Um, And I also used to work uh, as the sustainability lead in the innovation team of a firm in London. Um, So done a few different things with my time relating to uh, climate. My uh, specialty kind of research area that I focused on while I was studying was around climate change and human rights. Um, So 
quite a big um, central focus on uh, justice and placing people at the centre of climate crisis solutions. I wonder if you could just take us through a little bit of the past few days of COP and like how it is really amazing because what what you do is just it just it bite it makes the information bite size and comprehensive and accessible and I think that's the thing that's really quite um, lacking in the kind of world of understanding policies at the moment from the media. I wonder if you could talk us through what you think has been happening at COP so far. Um, so there's kind of two quite, I'd say, well, a number, but two from the world that I live in, disparate um, conversations going on around COP. One is, um, which I totally agree with, is there is a huge, um, it's it's a very like exclusive event. And while a lot of the narrative is around trying to halt climate change to preserve um, lots of communities and groups around the world who are already suffering from the impacts of the climate crisis, those groups themselves are being excluded from the conversation. And there's quite a kind of um, uh, an, an uncomfortable feeling that's underlying throughout the whole thing. Um, even, even very basic things like there was an Israeli minister who was denied access because she was in a wheelchair and there wasn't wheelchair access. Like this idea of inclusion was not um incorporated into COP planning right from the start and now it's it's shown in in physical accessibility and also in um the exclusion of the most affected peoples and areas groups from negotiations and from even just being allowed entry into the official COP areas um and then the other side from a more kind of policy side is actually there are there have been some quite good developments over the past few days um the, the thing the thing about big international agreements and treaties and and even just pledges are that uh are that it's all well and good signing up to something but actually seeing it through is really difficult and one of the one of the issues i guess with something like the paris agreement is um it's not internationally legally binding um you can't really do that in international law most things aren't internationally binding um, and one of the reasons things like the Paris Agreement was so successful is because it wasn't legally binding. And so countries signed up and but then didn't really have to do anything to, you know, they weren't going to get penalised for not actually committing to what they'd signed up to in the Paris Agreement. So the same way that everything that's happened at COP this week, um, big words, some big ambition, which is very welcomed. But until we kind of see those changes starting to be introduced, um, you know, take everything kind of with a bit of a pinch of salt um we've seen some good um ambition on deforestation um and i was really pleased to see the like lots of inclusion of um protection and support for indigenous communities and groups around the world um kind of recognition of their role in preserving biodiversity and ecosystems and the natural environment globally um there's been progress on methane reduction so methane is another greenhouse gas we often talk about carbon dioxide and carbon emissions um but methane is the kind of the, the second biggest greenhouse gas that we need to be worrying about so it's good to see some some progress there we've had some stuff on um the kind of finance side um on committing to and transparency around net zero plans from businesses um we've seen some other pledges from countries on uh their net zero targets that didn't previously have net zero targets um, and also starting to see some stories about phasing out fossil fuels and this is the cop where the kind of i think um presidency alok sharma i think his phrase is um 
resigning coal to history. And we've seen some quite good progress on that. Um, and with big countries that do use a lot of coal, like India, um, committing to net zero targets, it helps push that um, kind of coal story into the background. And now we're starting to see other stories of fossil fuel phase out. Um, but of course, there are kind of, you know, those those are good ambitions. Like I said, we need proper targets in place and proper policies to back them up from a domestic point of view. Um, there are, of course, also issues with having the polluters that we're saying we need to phase out present at COP. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a catch-22. Um, but, you know, I really try and look at things from a position of hope, and I really hope that the ambition, some of the ambition we're seeing here is seen through. Um, but also, of course, you know, it's good to be sceptical and think critically about these things. And it, just because people are saying they're going to do stuff doesn't necessarily mean that's what will happen. I think this is what everybody with this, what the big conversation is at the moment. It's like actions and agreements. Agreements are all well and good. But if there are no, if there are no actions in place to implement them, then it's all fluffy words, isn't it? Totally. I mean, since the Paris Agreement, even just the UK government uh, and and banks have spent billions on fossil fuel subsidies and new oil and gas projects, um, let alone the kind of global picture, which is like trillions and trillions of pounds. Um, and, you know, countries signed up to that and yet still continue to fund new fossil fuel projects, which were totally not in line with Paris Agreement commitments and net zero commitments. So, um, yeah, I, I do I do think there's been like having kind of worked and um, been involved in this field for a few years now, definitely not as long as some people, but longer than others. It's already quite strange to me, not strange, but positive, I think, how much the conversation about climate has changed. The coverage of COP, and I know we are in the UK, and obviously it's being hosted in the UK this year, but the coverage on the media has been way more than I think a lot of us thought it would be. Um, it's on you know, the Today programme, Radio 4 every morning. A lot of their headlines of big newspapers have got some kind of climate coverage every morning this week. Um, even a few years ago, that was completely unthinkable. Even if when I started getting involved in climate stuff, barely any countries had a net zero target and now we're seeing most countries around the world especially the big polluters have net zero targets so although it feels like ambition isn't super high and it feels like progress is slow when you take a step back and look back over the last few years it does feel like things are starting to shift a little bit and and governments are, start, are even if they aren't committing fully they are talking about it and are conscious that they need to start doing something the dial is slowly tipping. Um, that was amazing and so comprehensive. So thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you more, but also hearing your conversations with fellow or not fellow people um, in the climate biz uh, going forward. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. I'll be up there next Monday. So yeah, looking forward to it. Fab. See you soon. Cool. Thanks so much, Sophie. Bye. Bye. A new industrial revolution, powered by millions of sustainable innovations, is essential and is indeed already beginning. We will all share in the benefits, affordable clean energy, healthy air, and enough food to sustain us all. Nature is a key ally. Wherever we restore the wild, it will recapture carbon and help us bring back balance to our planet.
And as we work to build a better world, we must acknowledge no nation has completed its development because no advanced nation is yet sustainable. All have a journey still to compete so that all nations have a good standard of living and a modest footprint. We're going to have to learn together how to achieve this, ensuring none are left behind. We must use this opportunity to create a more equal world. And our motivation should not be fear, but hope. We'll move over to our part on the Green Zone and Fringe events to provide you with some inspirational content from around Glasgow. to get them to be part of the climate fight, how would you get them to engage? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is for people to realise that you actually can be a part of the climate movement, the climate justice movement, and you can be a proponent for change. So my advice to anyone who is on the fence would be to look around you, look around your local campaigns, find something that you're passionate about, Think about your skills and about how you can get involved. There's so many different ways that you can get involved in the climate justice movement. You don't need to be a spokesperson. You don't need to be at a march. There's so many things you could do behind the scenes. So many different roles. There is a place in the climate justice movement for everyone, and we need you, so please get involved. Uh, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Lauren McDonald. I'm Alice Aidy, a filmmaker, and I run a platform called Earthwise. Great. And we were talking about the importance of intergenerational conversations within activism. Yeah, absolutely. And also the um, awakening of excitement in people coming to such a kind of depressing suits and boots event. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Um... I, um, as many of you might know by now, I confronted the CEO of Shell, Ben Van Buren, at the, ten, the TED Countdown Summit in Edinburgh. Um, and we were just talking about how, like, how great it feels to know that as an individual you can do something that actually galvanises people and brings the energy up. And um, yeah, we were also talking about um, the role of Cristiana Figueres um, in that um, like, we need to... We need to have that intergenerational like um, communication to a point of like radicalization as well because I feel like the youth are by nature of like you know we we're going to be experiencing this for longer for the rest of our lives because we have more of our lives ahead of us more radically yeah. because just by the nature of that and I think you know older people really need to push the boundaries more and realize that like as the youth we cannot accept the fact that that certain um, ambitious targets are impossible because that just means that you, like you know our futures are not there and the the the, the Christiana pudding huge kind of destructive uh, businessmen on stage who are claiming that yeah. they're doing good even though they're doing a lot of bad is is quite condescending of where we need to get to in the future absolutely so like if we could say to Christiana one thing what would it be like please start to think about who you're giving a voice to on stage yeah 100 percent. that would be what i would say you know uh, we ha like in the run-up to the summit in the few days before we were having lots of conversations with christiana and with the other um like organizers of the ted countdown summit 
And we we said to them, you know, can you please like consider deplatforming Shell? There's so many, there's so many um, voices that deserve a platform in the climate movement that deserve us listening to them and having them at the forefront. At the forefront, you know, we're at the Minga Indigenous March right now. Right. We are seeing true climate leadership yeah. all around us on the streets. Um, climate leadership does not come from the greenwashing of the CEO of an oil company and I think like she really needs to think long and hard and others in that position of power as well long and hard about in the future inviting oil companies and big polluters to events and giving them a voice instead of giving a voice to the youth to BIPOC activists to um, indigenous activists to whatever group it is because you know people who have been oppressed systemically by capitalism for centuries are the ones who are best placed to solve this problem because they understand what oppression and suppression looks like yeah totally I'm just wondering if going forward like our what you know is it worth putting these people on a platform but like on the naughty step in a way and like (laughs) opening up dialogue between people that have been oppressed and systemically oppressed do you think that it's worth bringing like the CEO of Shell or BP on stage with these people or do you think that that they should just not be given the stage can I add something at this point (laughs) I I don't know that I can can add to Lauren but I just want to mention something that has been engraved into my heart I think that I heard at the TED conference following the protest and it was by Reverend Yarwood and he said the abolitionists wouldn't have invited the slave trader to their meeting wow that is that's that's the answer for me that sort of says it all we are facing a historic transition out of the fossil fuel era it is the end of this historic era we need to make that transition urgently and we need to do it without the companies who are complicit in creating the situation well i agree right but then like playing devil's advocate no 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 no. i'm on i'm clearly on your side i'm just trying to say like these people have the money hence they have the power right now is there any way of converting them or do we just want to like completely destabilise and, and stop capitalism altogether. I, I mean, think clearly we want to stop that's capitalism the biggest altogether. Question. That's the biggest question. Do we do it with them given, because of their complicity, do they have a bigger responsibility than anyone? And given that the finance and the infrastructure they have, should they play a role? The other side of that argument is because they are so complicit, they should be dismantled immediately, have absolutely no role. And I have no doubt that history will look back at them as climate criminals and in not very long in some decades they will be standing but then do we so I'm just trying to be solutions based do we then say okay ecotricity and other green energy energy suppliers do we go for them or are they still part of the system because or do we just need a whole new decentralized system whereby the communities and villages have their own they're given the means to make their own energy system so that they then can still live in this like digital age whilst being inverted commas clean yeah I mean I would always advocate for decentralization um it's a difficult question because you know we do live in a system that is so based on consumption and capitalism yeah. but I think you know the conversation around degrowth and actually using less energy needs to come into question as well totally um and you know that would that would solve a massive chunk of that problem if we just weren't 
relying on energy as much yeah. at all. And then we can we can transition to more, a more decentralized energy system. But you know, I'm not an expert yeah, yeah. on energy, so I'm probably not the best. But it's, to ask. it's essentially like a regenerative economy is what we need to be going towards. Absolutely. And then revalue, like having a revaluation of like all of our commodities and all of what we're doing at the moment. Yeah, you know, the whole way that we live just needs to be called into question. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the placards um, held by one of the Minga Indigena um, people said, colonialism caused the climate crisis. Indigenous peoples are the solution. And, you know, these, like, these communities have lived without, um, like the vast, vast amounts of modern technology that we consume and use every day. And I think, you know, by really listening to them, it means also taking action to live closer to their values. We need to indigenize ourselves. A lot of people say they want to come and, and save the Amazon. It is not a single issue thing. It's a racial justice approach. It's a social justice approach. It's a climate justice approach. And it has to be dealt like that. The, 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 the approach should be intersectional. Because there is no uh, racial justice with, without contemplating climate justice and indigenous issues and black liberation and indigenous sovereignty, uh, land back, restoration, uh, migrant issues, migrant rights, they all go hand in hand. And we're here and we, we are here to demand uh, solutions. We need to start by an integral approach that encompasses all of, all, all of these issues that we're fighting for because migrant rights, indigenous rights, black liberation, these all go hand in hand. I think I am here because we need representation. Indigenous people need a platform to voice our solutions and to voice the forest itself because the, 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 the forest does, doesn't have anyone to talk for them and we are here to uh, voice out the demands of mother nature. Indigenous people have been saying this. We have that. We need to protect the forests of the world in order to conserve the planet. If we don't do that, there is nothing that is gonna change. And if we need to, uh, and we need to act now and call and call it what it is. This is a climate crisis, and we don't need to wait 10, 20 years to start doing things. We need direct financing indigenous-based rights approach, black liberation, and indigenous sovereignty. That's what we're all asking for. Respect indigenous people's rights. If I, if, if, if I could speak to Biden, I will tell him, stop line three, respect indigenous people's rights. Land tenure is an important thing. We need to start supporting direct investment in the indigenous communities, indigenous community-based projects for conservation and land tenure. We need, we have the solution. We, we don't need more mansplaining by governments and we need to be financed directly. That's what we're, that's what we're saying. Just respect us. Don't come. Don't take our forests. Stop, stop the oil from here. Stop investing in oil and the gas industry and invest in cleaner, greener economies, fair economies, based on indigenous solutions.
um, sat here quite um, appropriately in the innovation hub of uh, the COP Blue Zone. Can you, first of all, tell our listeners your name and what you do? Thanks, Sophie. My name is Peter Sweetman, um, and I've been working for uh, close on 19 years in in climate change, uh, but mainly in um, climate finance and energy efficiency. Um, So I'm an engineer by training. Um, I worked for 10 years in the investment banking world, um, and then I had a Damascan moment in 2003 where um, I had already left banking and I had set up an NGO that was providing technology services to actually now 35,000 UK charities. Um, and I'd started that and I was working with WWF at the time as a client and I uh, had been invited to a dinner on climate change. And I just recall the dinner had a keynote speaker who talked about the climate crisis and I recall at the end of that dinner thinking this this man has just said that there is an asteroid heading heading towards planet earth and actually people like me haven't even been been told about it yet so I went up to him after the dinner and said I I don't know James whether um, that uh, it was all correct but I've got to read more about this to be able to understand it for myself Um, so I that was the beginning of my journey really and at that point I uh, sort of stopped doing what I was doing and uh, wanted to become involved in the fight against climate change. Um, And then I set up my own firm called Climate Strategy, which I run, and we have provided uh, policy advice to governments. We have provided um, transitional advice to companies and businesses wanting to move faster in this area. Um, And we've provided uh, uh, sort of structuring of investments to cities that want to reduce their energy footprint. And so... For most of that latter time, I've been focused on energy efficiency because energy efficiency is the quiet, sort of, uh, sort of beautiful partner to renewable energy and many of the other actions, which is less well known. As two thirds of the energy that we dig up out of the ground to, to burn just literally goes unused into the atmosphere, usually in waste heat. There is an enormous amount that we can do um, by just simply thinking about what we uh, need in terms of energy uh, to deliver the products and services to our lives and just reducing it at source, reducing the demand. And there's an enormous investment opportunity, staggering in size, which is really undertapped by financial institutions and the like because it's much, much harder to invest in a saving than investing in a new piece of infrastructure or a new energy generation plant. How do we get people excited about energy efficiency? Thanks for that question. Um, It is a question that I think a lot of us in energy efficiency have really thought about for a while. So there are some examples where neighbours can see an energy efficiency uh, renovation. So I remember um, uh, Estonia um, has blocks which they painted in different colours, so bright visible colours when they had been renovated. So you had grey um, traditional uh, ex-Soviet era um, multifamily department buildings next to brightly coloured ones that have been renovated. And it's true that a, a, a well-renovated apartment building just frankly looks beautiful and much more much more sort of uh, much more desirable and it's more comfortable and delivers a better air quality and costs less. So there's so many wonderful reasons in Mexico where I did some work with the Mexican government some time ago thinking about integrating energy efficiency into the energy transition law. Um, it was as simple as in uh, uh, sort of 
communities there where there was there was just no concept for insulation. It was just about identifying the walls or the ceilings or the floors that required insulation in, and putting it in as a standard, and then uh, that would cut the the cooling need for some of these homes absolutely dramatically. And that's really important for communities that haven't got you know, enough money to be able to pay for the air conditioning that they otherwise would have to use. So there's, I mean, there are traditional um, uh, building techniques, actually, in most cultures, bedded bedded behind, which we've almost forgotten in our rush to build sort of gleaming glass-fronted buildings of of today that look modern. But we need to not, not, not do that, but we need to do modern buildings in a way that's intelligently designed with low embedded emissions in the construction materials and a performing building that means you don't have to pay any energy and or you can keep it at the temperature you like without having to um, pay for enormous amounts of energy to be burned. The biggest other question I have um, is 1.5 degree mandate where we need to get to by 2050 to save the world. Are we going to make it? Well, um, question's been asked a lot and I think that the uh, trajectory that's necessary to keep us within a 1.5 temperature is a really um, steep and challenging one. Um, I'm, you know, I'm glad that over these first two days of the COP we've heard from countries like India, for example, who've put in place a net zero target, which is a reasonably unexpected and extremely positive thing. Um, And I think that now so I often talk to businesses and not governments, but the thing that the, the optimism that I draw is that um, when you start to recognize inside a business that there will come a time where that business has to do everything on a net zero emissions basis, net zero energy basis potentially, then everything that you do changes today because it's impossible to transition a business that doesn't fit into that new world paradigm which you have to have in your head. So. I've, I've led processes within businesses, interviewing business owners and business managers to discover which of the business unit components are resilient and can survive in that, in that new world that they will have to survive into, which just have to go. So we're in a business transformation that firm by firm, nation by nation, there are things that have to be shut down really quickly, much more quickly than anybody had anticipated. And there are things that have to be invested in and grown much more quickly than anybody who had anticipated. On that note, we are way over time, yeah. so we're going to have to say goodbye. It, yes. um, thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Sophie. I'm Alison Chiquel, and I'm the director of Judy Spice Corp. Whenever I'm around you, it's always a transformative conversation, but Alison has literally just been told by somebody that a conversation she had with them a year ago transformed their life, and I can't express more that the same thing happened for me, and six months ago I've, been, I've started working for you, and that's even more transformative. It's like a journey. So um, thank you for being an inspiration for not just me, but I imagine millions of people around you. Oh, Sophie. (laughs) That's such a nice thing to say. How do we spread these dynamics more globally so that these good energies that you're giving out and that other people are giving out around COP are spread around the entire world? So that's a really good question because the climate journey, the journey that we go on, all of us as, as individuals, is very personal, 
very intimate. Uh, I'm sure that for many of the people who might be listening to this podcast, they are on those journeys um, themselves. Um, and I, I suppose, you know, it's finding people to have those conversations with. It's finding inspiration from your daily life to take you on that journey, going, getting into the tough, difficult bits uh, with a bit of, you know, tolerance yourself, awareness that it's going to be hard, but really finding company to do it. I think, um, I think that's, the, that's the trick. Hop is the, um, the con- finding your own way to connect with what climate is to you. And I want to talk about um, particularly what Julie's bicycle are doing at this current moment that's quite, um, quite spiky and, and driven and the whole world is ready and waiting for it. So um, tell me. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the, I suppose the ethic, J- JB, Julie's bike has been around for a long time. It's been around for 15 years. And it, actually, funnily enough... Uh, the kind of the, the reason that we're doing this and the way that we're doing it hasn't really changed really profoundly and just to sort of say what that is um, it's recognising actually that there's quite a lot about the system that's really broken and um, and and yet you know speaking to that earlier point about what climate means there is a I, I genuinely think there is a real longing in us to do things differently in a way that that um, meets a, a different sense of what it is to be a, a human being on this sort of short time we have here, uh, and that extends into everything that we do. And so JB was set up really to provide some really grounded solutions, um, which would start people off on their journey. Um, and that might be about how you do things sustainably. And actually, I still have huge faith in starting with doing. We do a lot of thinking, but actually the embodied response to climate, which means that you actually do it, for me, or has always felt like a good place to start. And um, so actually changing what we do and then thinking about it, not that there's a... Not that there's a chronology on that but that actually that really feels important so really rooting it in changing how we work is is an invitation to a much much richer relationship to this whole issue which is kind of this whole it's not an issue it's everything this because within climate you have it's a proxy really term for justice for uh, obviously all the issues around the way we work with the world and we the way we steward it the way we steward ourselves and one another all of that so all of it it's so profound the big picture frameworks within which culture is working at the moment and that's you know there's an it does cultural policy internationally at the national level, does it read across to what needs to be done in the context of climate and nature and circular economy and regeneration and really creating a different kind of um, cultural and ethical compact with Mother Earth and with all of, you know, all of us who are so dependent and connected. Uh, what culture does do, and you're seeing it particularly in the context of 
um, Global South countries where issues around, for example, the right to free expe- expression and democracy, cultural rights, which, in, which culture, you know, in this context is a really critical idea. It's about, um, not, it's not an idea, it's a really critical, existentially important thing, which is our beliefs, our myths, our languages, our customs, our habits. It really is who we are. For culture not to be front, central, guiding, stewarding this big existential issue is an act of recklessness. But I think culture is doing that, but if for culture not to be supported in fronting and supporting and stewarding this right is blindness. It is. So cultural ministers out there, environmental ministers out there, let's get culture on the table. Um, Julie's Vice School are hosting an amazing event called Culture is the Missing Link on Friday the 5th and we will on Friday give you a snippet of that and explain why culture really is the missing link. Thank you, Sophie. Thanks for coming on. Client Earth use the law to create systemic change that protects the Earth for and with its inhabitants. We work on climate change and nature protection with partners and citizens around the globe. We hold industry and governments to account and defend your right to a healthy world. ClientEarth.org so hi everyone. We are here with Sarah Lobo and Ellen Baker from Client Earth, and they've kindly given us um, a bit of their time. So I've got four quick fire questions for them um, based on the work that Client Earth do uh, and their time at COP. And um, I'll start off with um, I'll fire this at Sarah first off. So. We're here in Glasgow waiting for the world's leaders to chart a path out of what looks like a dire situation. Do we have faith they can do this? And what happens if we don't leave here with a solid set of commitments to avert climate catastrophe? Thanks very much. Well, you know, there are really a series of scenarios about what could happen in these negotiations. We could get um, some uh, bad commitments, we could get a lack of commitments, we could get really great commitments. Uh, but really, whatever the world walks away from COP with, uh, we'll definitely keep seeing litigation from groups of people all over the world, from civil society, from individuals who are continuing to find new and innovative ways to hold uh, the people most responsible for climate change and the destruction of nature to account. So one of the things we work on is, is sort of using the law to bring about uh, climate action. And we're seeing across the world that this is a major and emerging tool, and it's really an incredibly exciting space. So no matter what happens at COP, uh, at the end of COP, the door kind of remains wide open for this litigation to continue. Yeah, and as an aside, um, so at Client Earth, if you could just uh, um, give a quick one line on what you, what you do. Yeah, sure. So Client Earth uh, uses uh, the law as a tool to bring about climate action around the world. So we use it uh, to hold governments to account, uh, also to hold companies to account, and to try to sort of bring innovative legal strategies across a variety of sectors, from corporate law uh, to environmental law, 
the local planning law uh, to try to uh, bring about uh, climate action uh, in, in a progressive and, and creative way. So that's perfect. That leads me on to the second question, which I'll direct to you, um, Ellen. So if we're talking about litigation, are there also different uh, citizen climate cases as well, not just governmental cases that you can point to in different countries, say, across the pond in Europe? Yeah. So the interesting thing about the law is that I think that if you talk to people about climate litigation, the thing that they might immediately think about is um, cases like the one that we've seen in the Netherlands. So the Urgenda case, um, forgive me, all Dutch people listening for my pronunciation. But um, uh, yeah, so it would be a group of people who say to their government, hey, you're not doing enough. Um, this is threatening my future, my kids' future. What are you going to do? So that's one way of doing it. And that's amazing. And that's something we've seen rippling across the world. But the law is a vast toolkit and you can really look at some quite innovative ways to force action on climate change, be that from a government or a local government or even a company business. Um, so at Client Earth, um, we've been supporting citizens in Poland um, where climate change is actually becoming apparent through droughts, through flooding, um, extreme weather. And we're supporting a group of claimants in different um, regions of Poland to try and hold their regional and eventually their national government to account. Um, but there's other there's other really interesting levers that you can use. So um, we're taking action in Belgium. Um, so there's companies like um, Ineos is is the company in question who are trying to build a plastics plant. And plastics is an unseen climate killer. It's actually made from fossil fuels, which is something that not necessarily everybody knows. And we need to stop vast new plants that create the building blocks for plastics coming online because that's just going to give a longer lifespan to fossil fuels. So it's not always people against governments. It can be civil society organisations like Client Earth um, trying to stop unnecessary industri industrial plants coming online. Um, so, yeah, anything from human rights law to investment law to local planning law, you, there's, a, there's a lot of equipment that we already have at our disposal to, to make action happen. Brilliant. Yeah. So, Sarah, zooming back out, if we're looking at a negotiation level, um, going back to COP26, um, what do we actually need to see in terms of the commitments? Uh, sure. So, you know, what we really hope to see is that the UK shows leadership in trying to shepherd the strongest possible agreements. Uh, the UK has talked a lot about how uh, they want to be a, a climate leader, uh, but we can't accept promises that are going to steer us over the precipice. You know, the, the science is there and we need to follow it. So one of the things that we hope to see is that all countries, and, you know, especially G20 countries, who are responsible for 80% of global emissions, we want to see them commit to more ambitious, nationally determined contributions. Uh, so 2050 net zero targets, and 2030 emissions reduction plans. And we want them to enshrine these into domestic law. So it's not enough to just commit to them kind of um, in public, but it's also about uh, developing the sort of legal infrastructure that can make sure that these hold up in practice. Um, another kind of area that we want to see some change, and we really hope to see some changes um, in the climate finance space. So, you know, to finance the transition to net zero, we have to make a lot of economic shifts. Um, and these shifts need to happen uh, at a sort of international level so that uh, developed countries can help support developing countries in adapting to the physical and economic consequences of warming that they had little role in causing. So uh, this kind of economy-wide approach to dealing with climate risk is something that uh, we really hope to see governments take seriously. 
Um, and, you know, we want the UK government to use its position, really, uh, as president of COP26, to show this global leadership, um, to develop its own 2030 emissions reduction plan, and to commit that into law. Uh, and we also want to see a movement away from coal, which Ellen can talk to you about uh, in more detail. Yeah, well, yeah, Ellen, straight over to you then. Sure. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on coal. <laughs> and we work with a team um, that we look at coal all over Europe, which has a surprisingly strong presence. Um, we're, on, we're in structural decline when it comes to coal, but um, there's still a lot of plants sticking around. Um, and there's at this point, the aesthetics won't cut it and we can't we really can't have agreements that look good or we really can't have agreements that are kind of nearly there, but not quite. It really is the time for action. So um We'd expect, for example, Germany, um, who's got a, a coal phase-out date currently of 2038, so that's nearly 20 years away, um, to bring that way forward. And the new, um, in the discussions currently um, in the new German government, they're saying ideally we'll bring it forward to 2030, and that can't be ideally. That has to be real. There's still villages in Germany who are bit, which are set to be demolished, so that Germany can mine for more coal, and that is in today's world not okay um so yeah we need countries particularly western european countries where there's absolutely no excuse for shoddy ambition um to come forward and and cut coal and um yeah put people people first i think that's another big theme that's going to come out of cop this year it's just transition which is a phrase that gets thrown a lot about a lot in the climate community and it basically means a move forward that leaves no one behind and i think that's what the building back better kind of rhetoric that we've seen all over um europe and a lot of the world after the coronavirus has been we need to build back green we need to build back better and give people social justice as part of this this transformation well fantastic and thank you both for your time and your insights and um i encourage everyone to check out what clients earth are doing and it's um definitely based in litigation, but then also working with um, artists and um, musicians and all different across society, all different groups, um, just to uh, try and spread the spread the message and to get involved. Um, so yeah, so everyone do um, follow Client Earth. And um, thank you, Sarah and Ellen, for your time. Thanks so much, Sega. Thank yeah. you. Next up, music and climate. We are talking to musicians across multiple disciplines to gather inspiration and ideas. Introducing Cosmo Sheldrake. So you've used really interesting approaches to recording music, mostly and a lot of the time from nature. For example, using the sound of the air coming out of a whale, uh, from sounds from space weather, birdsong, and they all um, have a huge part to play in your songs. For me, this is innovation within the music world. I wonder if you have any ideas about how to innovate and encourage creative thinking about tackling climate change. Well, I mean, I'm hoping that it's going to be um, artist-led. I think there has to be a kind of... Um, a marriage of the sort of sciences and the arts in 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 this approach, and I don't think I mean I think for too long, and I um, you know we can see the effects in a sort of cultural sphere. Like it's when when all of the communication is left to the scientists to kind of 
um, communicate the, the scale of the conundrums or the problems or the particular situations. It clearly doesn't go as far as it could do if it was, if it was um, being carried on the back of a whole kind of, you know, the wings, I guess, of sort of music or other um, like poetic forms of, of, of communicating. So um, I, I also think that art doesn't and needs to be more than just a way of communicating data or science. It has to be in a, like, um, it has to be able to create instrumental change in the world in and of itself. So I think there's like somewhere in between the two where I just, I just feel there's a much, much, much bigger role for, for art, artists of all stripes and colors to, to be, to be making things that, that genuinely impact or change or transform the way that we see or interact with or like inhabit the, the world around us. So I, I'm hoping that, that, you know, that, that's a kind of growing and, um, and swelling sort of feeling and sense among other artists. And I think it is. Um, and I also think it's important then like what, um, what you guys are up to, which I think some um, earth percent's up to, which I think is an incredibly important sort of aspect of that, or just to see the whole thing in a holistic, <clears throat> the whole economy around, um, around the creative arts and industries as well. And just, you know, for every, um, yeah, just just re reminding that when we make anything, when we like stream a YouTube video, when we um, buy a, a a vinyl, we're we're kind of, you know, this is a, using up huge amounts of electricity and server power somewhere on the other side of the world, or like, you know, it's a, a virgin plastic that we're using and and um, and putting into the world. And so just to rem remember that, you know, everything we do in a, like in these so far and at the moment is is part of this extractive industry. And so so building into the very mechanism ways in which um, you know, by by streaming and listening to music, at least a chunk of that is going to be going back into um, into um, you know ecosystem uh, restoration or um, that sort of thing. So I think it's it, it has to be built in, and at the moment it's just a kind of afterthought at best. And and so I'm I'm hoping that yeah, arts and artists of all um, shapes and varieties can can kind of really take on this challenge and and make it a priority. And actually, I've just been working on a project with Julie's Bicycle, giving out a plea to cultural governance to, to actually help with mandates on this. But your mind makes me think of so many things. But also, the, I was talking to the lead author of the IPCC report in one of my shows, who said, we have all of the data that should make everybody change, should make everybody's world change. But how to communicate it is a whole different story. So currently the maximum they would go towards in the realm of art is a graphic designer. But why don't they go to an artist, a musician to say, hey, we have this really important bit of data that needs to be really widespread around the world so people and governments listen, help us out. So I think it's, a, it's not just a two-way thing within the music industry or within the, the art industry deciding to make a difference. It's also all of the other sectors understanding that art has such an importance in this fight and art can essentially make change. Fundamentally, it all comes down to what we kind of, you know, science is such an abstract way of encountering and engaging with the world in, in its kind of um, most of its mainstream applications. It's, it's you know, it fundamentally separates the world from us in this, um, you know, intentionally sort of trying to study this object out there, which has no, um, you know, it's a total fallacy in the first place, but, but that's its sort of explicit um, approach. And I just, obviously um, we're all kind of deeply emotional, emotional and social beings. And, and unless this gets woven into the fabric of the emotional social life, um, 
you know, it's just not going to be, at first it has to be meaningful and, and in order to make it meaningful, it has to be kind of brought into that, um, that kind of relationship. Um, and I just don't think that's clearly, it hasn't been, and um, I don't think that's going to come from, from sort of cold facts, figures and, and, and that kind of stuff. And it has to be woven into narrative. It has to be woven into storytelling. It has to be like brought into, you know, um, emotional relationship um and i think you know fundamentally underneath all of that i think is just a, a, a kind of a different way of interacting with the the more than human world as well just seeing it not as some inanimate mechanical entity that kind of goes on and you know tweak a dial here and you can change this thing over there so it's just like it's so obviously so much more complicated than that and just the kind of yeah the real kind of ecology of it all just how it's all kind of completely and utterly inextricably woven into this thing and 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 we are you know in the same way inextricably woven into relationship with it it just i think it has to be respun and retold in those in those ways and we have to learn deep emotional connection you know in order for us to be motivated to act in these in these ways and i just yeah again i just i think that definitely has to be and is going to be the the um the way that people sort of assimilate these stories and and you know breathe them out in in artistic forms and um certainly not in kind of cold hard supposedly rational fact <clears throat> okay i'm gonna say thank you so much for for joining us it was an absolute pleasure thanks so much for inviting me and um, best of luck and i hope it all goes well thank you Introducing Eno Insights. This part of the show will take a dive into Brian Eno's mind, thinking of innovative ways to save the planet. Yes, it's all looking good. A big hello and welcome to Brian Eno. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Let's dive in. Interconnectedness, right? Art and nature are interconnected, yet we're so disconnected from art and nature the systems that we're in currently are so disconnected to art and nature as you say art is put at the bottom of the pile of importance and nature we use as a dumping ground and actually everything is connected right Mm. and nature has the answers already nature has all the technologies we're just not looking in the right places for the innovative technologies because they exist now you're looking at the Melvin Sheldrake book and you're realizing how wonderful the wood wide web is underground and how much you know how much wealth how much of a wealth of knowledge that gives us so based on this concept of everything being interconnected we need to start thinking about these systems that are all connected yeah so can you see a future that is based on a new economic model of interconnectedness that is already starting to exist um if you look at economists like Carlotta Perez and Kate Rayworth and Kate Ricketts and Mariana Mazzucato, interestingly, all women, they are together evolving a new economic paradigm. And Kate Rayworth expresses it very well, I think, uh, in her donut economics, with the idea that it doesn't make any sense to have an economics that either overuses resources, so exhausts the future, or creates too much uh, 
waste or um, disruption, basically, and again ruins the future that way. So um, you don't have to be saintly about it. You just have to be pragmatic. If you want a world that you can continue to live in, then you have to have a different economics. At the moment, the economics we have says that if something doesn't have a price, it doesn't have a value. So, you know, air doesn't have a price, so we just put any amount of shit into the air because nobody owns it, so we can, we can do it. Um, so there is a new economics growing, and it's head-to-head with the old economics which, of course, is the economics of the establishment. So um, they've, got, they've got the power of being entrenched, but they're losing. You know, the interesting thing about modern monetary theory is that it's essentially an acknowledgement of the idea that it's humans who create value. They, they decide that something is valuable. It's, it's not a given. So we can change our ideas about what is valuable and we can extend them. At the moment, we have a very narrow notion of what is valuable and it relates entirely to our particular short-term ambitions. Um, that's going to change. It is changing. Huge, huge thanks to the speakers, Salim Herc, Helen Barrett, Alice A.D., Lauren MacDonald, Peter Sweetman, Alison Tickell, Love Sega, Ellen Barker, Sarah Lobo, and the wonderful musical visionary Cosmo Sheldrake. Also, thank you to our new producer, Gaspar. Thinking it over. Thinking it over. Am I really losing my head? Really losing my head? My head? My head? My head? Broken words Lost souls Broken words Find my head Not it burns.